if you'll take a look at the screen, you'll notice that our title today is Life Quest. A quest is a long, gruesome pursuit in a desire to accomplish, to achieve, or to attain something. You are, it, it, you are looking for, you are longing for, you are pursuing this certain thing that, that is elusive, that is evasive, and yet you continue unrelentlessly to try to grab hold of it and try to take hold of it and claim it as your own. And what I find by righteousness, if we're all honest this morning, that is exactly what righteousness is. It is somewhat elusive, yet it is something that is a lifetime quest for every Christ follower, every disciple of Jesus. And those of us who seek to follow in his footsteps should have a desire, a longing, a quest for not only positional righteousness in Christ, which is ours in Jesus, but a practical righteousness in which we are seeking to live out our faith on a day-to-day basis. Now, some of us more than likely when we hear the word righteousness have all kinds of mixed emotions and confusing thoughts, pretty much. Uh, those of us who have grown up in the church have some idea and understanding of it. Some of it is accurate and somewhat if quite distorted. And those of us who are new in the faith, like Kevin, who uh, accepted Christ just a couple of weeks ago, are probably wondering, what in the world is righteousness? We're going to define that. We're going to talk about that. But I think all of us more than likely could come to the same conclusion as this, is that all of us, while we may claim some aspect of righteousness, all of us would have to honestly admit that we're not as righteous as we would like to to be. Probably as recently as this morning, you have bumped into a thing called sin, and and you have bumped into a thing called the flesh, and as a result of reacting to the flesh and reacting to the carnal nature, you have committed some act, or you have had some thought, or you have had some emotion, or maybe you've even done some action in which it has reminded you that you are not perfect. And as a result of your imperfection and that struggle and that strive for perfection, we come to the understanding of even though I know I have righteousness in Christ, I don't sometimes feel very righteous at all. And the reaction to that is, is, is a number of reactions. Some of us will tend to masquerade our lack of righteousness and we'll come to church and pretend to be righteous all week long as if we had never sinned and we'll put on this air, this facade that we're holier than thou and claim a, a perfect life during the week as if nothing has taken place and there's been no sin at all. Some of us will come with a downtrodden look and we'll sort of put our tail between our legs and we'll come to church and people will ask us, what's the matter? And yet even though we would like to tell them we won't because we know that confessing sin or weakness or shortcomings or failures to anyone else, especially in a small group like a life group, is hazardous, isn't it? Because you don't want to be the talk of the lunch, do you? And so we have a tendency then to to sort of camouflage or cover up our weaknesses, our failures, our sin. And then there are some of us who, who sort of grapple with it and we understand that, that, that it's a pursuit that while we seek to attain is something that, that is unattainable. Some of us have given up. We have just thrown in the towel, we've walked away, and we have decided that righteousness is not a reality. It's a, it's a matter of fact, it's a cruel hoax. 
that, that God has placed on people and God demands righteousness from those who are Christ's followers. And yet in that pursuit, in that relentless pursuit, in our struggle to attain righteousness, we have thrown in the towel because there is no way in the world on this planet while we have life and breath that we're ever going to live a completely perfect righteous life. And so we quit. Hence is the reason why many people are not in church today. And we have thousands of church members who are members of this church and yet have thrown in the towel and walked away from Christianity because I just can't live up to those expectations. Well, in the passage today, there's hope for all of us, no matter where we are. And I want to take a look at the Beatitudes in this beautiful narrative called the Sermon on the Mount, the largest narrative of a single sermon of Jesus ever recorded in the Gospels where he begins in this sermon on the Beatitudes. And we've seen a few of these Beatitudes, and we're going to talk about the Beatitude called righteousness today. So stand with me in honor of God's word. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Let's stretch our legs and kind of, you know, get the blood circulating because I've got a lot of verses today. <laughs> and uh, so buckle up. Here we go. I've not been this excited, really. Well, I've been excited. I get excited about all the messages and all the things that God, not because of my delivery, but because of the content. You know, I told Patty today, I'm really excited about the message today, but it's not about the delivery because the delivery could always use some help. Amen? That's what I thought. But it's the, it's the truths that are here, okay? And so there are some profound truths that are just, man, they, they just electrified me this week. And I'm excited about the truths that are found in these texts. So when I'm excited, we're going to have to buckle up because we've got a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of turf to cover real quickly in a very short period of time. <clears throat> so Matthew chapter 5, let's look at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mount, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Here's today's. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Everybody waiting for lunch, say amen. Okay. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They shall be satisfied. God, I pray that as we stand in honor of your word today, that you be glorified by the study that we have before us today. Help me quickly articulate exactly what is necessary and only what is necessary to help us grasp this very important concept so that we today can leave with a full understanding of how we can be satisfied in the area of righteousness. Because I'm convinced there's a lot of us that are unsatisfied because we know you possibly are not satisfied with the lives that we're seeking to live. And we see the hypocrisy and we see the, the unrighteousness and we, we see the sin and yet we wonder and we struggle and we wrestle with all of these things and we don't fully understand how you can see us as righteous yet we are still yet sinners. And so I thank you for the joy that is ours to study this passage today. So open our hearts and open our minds today to be able to grasp this important truth I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. As you take a look at the outline, it's important for us to first of all start, start with the right definition. There's a definition of righteousness because the reality is what's right for you is right for you and what's right for me is right for me, right? <laughs> no. Where do we get the standard for righteousness? Who gets to define what is righteous and what is unrighteous? Who gets to decide that? 
I mean, there's a lot of discussion about that today because we live in a moral dilemma because there are no moral absolutes in the society in which we live. And there are people today, many in Wichita, who will tell you, and they're your friends and they're your neighbors, they're co-workers, they are people you go to school with and people you're going to recreate with. They say, what is right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. It doesn't really matter what anyone else says. Don't be a hater. Don't judge me, man. Because I see that what I'm doing is right, even though you might think that it's wrong. And there are times when, when, when we do think some things are wrong, in fact, they might be right. And yet there are some things we might think that are right that could be wrong. Where do we go for the standard of righteousness? We go, first of all, to the scriptures. The scriptures define for us what is righteous and unrighteous. Notice what the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for the reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Notice all scripture. A-L-L means exactly that, all scripture. Every jot, every tittle, every word, everywhere where you might think there might be an error or mistake, all scripture. How can we sit there and look at a puzzle that's missing a couple of pieces, we, we, we can't find those pieces, and then conclude that the whole puzzle is wrong? And there are many who take a look at the Scripture and say, well, I don't have all the pieces of the puzzle, so therefore I'm going to throw it all out. And we don't do that. And notice that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable. It is breathed out. This is a, a word in which God is trying to paint a picture of a sailboat in which the sail is being hoisted, and the wind is blowing onto the sail, and it's empowering the boat to move. Men inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, he breathed on them, and they wrote the inerrant, the infallible, the authoritative Word of God. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it is all profitable for us, for teaching, for correction, and for, notice what, the training in righteousness. That word training is a word that helps understand, for those of us who are parents, we have trained our children right from wrong. It is the scriptures that helps us know what is right and what is wrong. God and God alone holds the standard for what is right and for what is wrong. It's not up for debate. It's not up for discussion. It's not up for a vote. It's not up for any society, any special interest group that that whose lifestyle conflicts with what the Bible says to redefine, reinterpret that which the Bible has said. God sets the standard. Like it or not. And to be honest with you, there sometimes I don't like it because it corrects and it reproves and it convicts me and it convicts you of our sin. And we open and we read it and we go, why did I read this today? I'm feeling so guilty because my life is not measuring up to the standard that God has set. The standard, though, is God. The standard is God. And we go to the scriptures to learn about the standard of God. And as we read in the scriptures, it reveals God as the standard for righteousness. And if our lives do not measure up to the standard of God and the standard that is, is in his word, guess what? We're not righteous. So the standard's in the scriptures. 
I mean, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Ow, that hurts. And no creature in his, is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must have an account. The reason why God gave us the word, he gave us the scriptures, he gave us the standard is so that we might know our need for a savior. We do not and never can in and of ourselves, our own effort, ever measure up to the standard that God has set by his nature, his character revealed in his scriptures. There's no way we can measure up to that. And so we see that the definition of righteousness is revealed in the scriptures. You want to know what righteousness is? Study the scriptures. Number two, we see that not only is it revealed in the scriptures, but it's required for salvation. Did you know that righteousness is required for salvation? For without righteousness, you won't be saved. The Bible says in Romans chapter 2, verse 22, for there is now no distinction. No distinction. I don't care if you've been brought up in a church or not, if you're Jew or Gentile, it doesn't really matter. There's no distinction. There are no special favorites with God. God judges all on an equal plane. There is no distinction for all, A-L-L, not only is all Scripture, but all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Propitiation speaks of our appeasement as an offering for our sin. We are in desperate need because we have violated the scriptures and the standard of God. It says here, we need a savior. For without a savior, we can't be saved because in and of ourselves, in our own righteousness, we don't measure up to the standards, so therefore we are condemned because of our sin. We need the propitiation by his blood to the received, to be received, how? By faith. That was to show God's righteousness. Who was the revelation of the righteousness of God? Not only himself and his scriptures, but his son Christ. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I wish I had time to talk about this here, but I don't in length. But Romans 6.23 says that the wage of sin is what? Death. Is that fair? How can a loving God send people to an eternal hell? And I've said this before. God doesn't send people there. They send themselves there because of their condition, and the condition is unrighteousness. It's sin. You can't blame God for being true to his nature. And the reason God judges us because of our sin is because God is a just God, and because he's a just God that is a part of his nature, he cannot do anything but be true to his nature and judge us for sin. You know, some of us would think, you know, the sentence or the punishment or the judgment for sin would be enough to stop people from sinning. Is it? I ask you, is it? Has it stopped you at all? To know that you're going to be judged, that you're not going to measure up to the standard, that, that you're going to be punished for unrighteousness? Has that ever once crossed your mind when you committed sin? Maybe once in a few Blue moons, but not on a regular basis. That's why we are quick to give in to the flesh and to sin. So God punishes us because of our sin, not, not to keep us from sin, but because of his nature, because he is a just God, he must punish mankind for their sin. He must punish us to be just. 
It wouldn't be fair for me to be speeding on the way to church this morning and for a police officer to pull me over and give me a ticket and get mad at the police officer because he wrote me a ticket. Now, would it? Why are you writing me a ticket? Well, you were speeding. But that's not fair. I got to uphold the law. If you were to commit a crime, what do you do? You do the time. Why? Because it's justice. And because God is just, he punishes sin. And he says, in order to have salvation, we must possess righteousness, which we do not have. Now, hold on. We're going to get to the end. Just, just hang on. I know. You said, but where's the hope? Just, just hang on. Not only is, is it revealed in the Scripture required of salvation, but thirdly, it is received by the Savior. It's received by the Savior. Notice in Romans chapter 5, verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in, in the life through the one Jesus Christ. There's the hope. This is awesome. Righteousness is received by the work of Christ. It, it's not something that I can do for myself. It's not as a result of my own self-effort. It's because of the effort of someone else, and his name is Jesus. The sin came into the world because of the sin of one man named Adam. And because sin entered into the world, and we were now born sinners because of the one sin called Adam, we're all born sinners because of the one life that was given on the cross called Calvary, nearly 2,000 years ago through a, a man named Jesus who was the Son of God who died a vicarious, sinless, perfect life on the cross for sins that he didn't commit, our sins. Now we then can receive righteousness. We can receive his righteousness. So righteousness is received through faith in Christ. It's, it's beautiful here. Those who receive the abundance of grace. I like that, the abundance of grace. Grace is what? Unmerited favor from God. It's not something that I get because I deserve it. It's something that I receive, not because I deserve it, because he just freely gives it to me. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. There's nothing you can do to receive the righteousness of Christ. It's a free gift, man. All you have to do by faith is to reach out and receive it, and it becomes yours. Where's Kevin? Is that good news, Kevin? I told you this would be good for you this morning, didn't I? Here's a man who told me, you know, he was 20-something years on crack and five years in prison because of crack, and we're, we're looking at a man who's been redeemed. And I'm thinking, you know, he said, go ahead and use me as an example today if you want to. But you know what? Paul's about to say here in a minute, Kevin, that, that, that he, like all of us, are in the same boat, man. We have no righteousness of our own. Remember the first, but the first beatitude, it says the poor in spirit, those who come empty-handed, those who come bankrupt with nothing to offer, now receive this incredible gift called righteousness that we could have never measured up to on our own independently of Jesus. And fourth, notice it's reflected through submission. Righteousness not only is received by the Savior, but there's a reflection. There's a something that we must do. There's something on our part that must happen. Notice what he says in Romans 6, 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. There are natural, have you ever felt like you got natural limitations here? Uh, he's talking to a group of people that are just not getting it. They're not getting it. You ever read something and go, what's he saying? I don't get it. That ever happened to you? Anybody? Okay, are you awake out there? You're just not getting it. 
He said, I'm speaking to you guys. You're just not getting it. You, you're, you're trying to think naturally, but you need to think supernaturally. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now, notice what he says, you once were slaves to sin and to lawlessness, but now... Present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. You see, there's a submission part where we must present ourselves now to God. That word doesn't mean present. It means to stand next to. I understand and I get it if you want to do a a Greek study in that. But we're to stand next to in the idea of choosing by submission to stand next to Christ and to represent this righteousness. We were once slaves to unrighteousness, and now we are slaves to righteousness. There's been a transformation, man. There's been a change. I have a new heart and a new life and a new way of thinking and a new beginning. And the Holy Spirit has cleansed my heart. And now everything is different. And now because I have a righteousness that's been granted to me through faith in Christ, I now live out that life of righteousness because of the life that Christ gave me. Ephesians 6.14, he says, Stand therefore having fastened the belt of truth and to put on the breastplate of righteousness. To put on the breastplate of of righteousness, to put it on. It's an idea of submission. That means I can put it on or I cannot put it on. Turn with me to a passage in Matthew chapter 5. It's not on the screen. Just hang on for a minute if you would. We'll go to the next point in a minute. I want you to turn with me, and I want you to read out of your Bibles with me, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. It's always good to open your Bibles in church from time to time. We've gotten lazy. Some of you are not bringing your Bibles. How many of you have your Bibles written? No, I'm not going to do that. How many of you have your, your phones? No, I'm not going to do that. Matthew 5, 17. I want you to notice this. This is what righteousness is not, okay? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, notice this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These religious elite were righteous, at least they thought. And they paraded themselves in the city streets of Jerusalem and throughout Israel as self-righteous individuals, and that is exactly what they were, self-righteous. Jesus confronts this self-effort in this text. All the effort that you produce in the world will never result in righteousness. Let me say that again. Write this down. All the effort that you can muster up will never produce enough righteousness to be saved. It's not going to happen. These these guys, these religious elite, thought they were going to heaven because I am right. As a matter of fact, I wish we had time to talk about what we don't. They, they, They knew they couldn't do all of this, so there are some that narrowed it down to just one commandment. If I could just wait one commandment right, then I'll be righteous. At least they were smart enough to know, one, you can't even measure up to the one. 
And Jesus is saying here that, that their righteousness was outward. It was not inward. He's saying that it was partial, not complete. He says that it was dishonest. It is not honest. He's saying that it is, it is egotistical, not humble. And as a result of that in this text, they will never enter the kingdom of God. God requires genuine righteousness, and that righteousness is a righteousness that only God can give. To be saved. Only God can give you the righteousness necessary to be saved. Man, that takes the stress off me. I don't know about you. It's not, a, it's not about me. It's all about him. So now let's go to the desire of righteousness. We, we defined a little bit of what it is, and I wish you had time to camp out there. We could do a whole series on that, but I don't have time. Let's look at the desire of righteousness. Notice in the text, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He uses the word blessed, and we've defined that already, but the word blessed gives us the first aspect about this desire. This desire requires concentration. The word blessed means that we should concentrate. What are we concentrating on? To be blessed. What does the word blessed mean? Somebody tell me. We, we, we talked about it now for the fourth Sunday. What does it mean, guys? You're not getting it like we talked about earlier in Paul. It means for God to pronounce you approved. That means that you're bringing a smile to God's face, right? Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, what's what's God going to do? He's going to approve of you. He's going to pronounce you approved. And he's going to smile down from heaven on your life. And he's going to bless you, and you're going to find favor with him, and your life is going to be great. That's what it means, right? So here he's saying that the concentration of this self-righteousness is to be approved by God. What kind of righteousness am I to live out? A righteousness that brings a smile to God's face, not to your face, not to anybody else's face, not even to my own standard, but God's standard. See the pressure that takes off me? I don't have to live according to your standard, Brother David. I have to live to his. And when I, when I concentrate on him and, and his righteousness, and, and I hunger and thirst for that, and he looks down and he, notice what the scripture says in Romans 12. He said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I do I do want us to look at verse 2, though. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern, notice, we may discern what the will of God is all about, what is good, what is acceptable and perfect to him. That's righteousness. What should you concentrate on? God, what is it? How can I live my life in such a way that I'm going to make you smile today? You may not make your coworkers smile, but if you make God smile, that's enough, isn't it? I think sometimes we are so focused and so concentrated on, on, on pleasing others that we're not really seeking to please God. That, that's hard in ministry, isn't it? New worship arts pastor, Brother Mark. He's not going to please everybody here. I'm just going to tell you right up front. Where'd the pulpit go? It's gone. Brother, it's gone. I'm mad now. The pulpit's gone. I'm not pleased. If I show me a scripture where it says you got to have a pulpit in a church, he said, "Can I move the pulpit?" I said, "Yeah, I don't care." 
Notice I got a shirt on. I don't have a coat on. I don't have a tie on. I've already had one person remind me of that. Where's your tie, preacher? There's a lot of pressure in here to please people. And if you don't please me, by golly, I'll go to the church down the street. Well, guess what? It'll be a matter of a few weeks. You're going to go down to the church down the street, and there's going to be a preacher over there who's not going to please you either. And you're going to be a church hopper. Yeah. You know what? You need to please God rather than yourself. There are too many people trying to please themselves. They don't give a flip about pleasing God. Seriously. Whatever pleases me. But it says here that I should discern what the will of God is, what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect, in order to please God. It is his righteousness to please him. 2 Timothy 2.15, notice, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Are you seeking the approval of the one and only whose approval matters? Seriously, are you? Are you concerned about that? Do you hunger and thirst to please God? Is that your desire? Well, not only does desire require concentration, but secondly, desire requires cultivation. Look at the text in Psalms 42, 1 and 2, a beautiful text. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. Oh, God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He is hungering and thirsting for God. Do you hunger and thirst for God? Chances are most of us do not. We're so preoccupied with all the other garbage of the world that we're not, we hunger and thirst for lunch. It says hunger and thirst. That's a strong desire here. It is a natural overflow of the body. I don't know about you, but about 12, 15, 12, 30, I'm going to get hungry. I don't have to think about it. My body's going to say, feed me. And you can tell I've been feeding my body. Thank you for some of you pointing out I've gained weight lately. I appreciate that. It's the stress the church has caused me. No, I'm just not kidding. Just kidding. Uh, I think some of you got used to me. You know, I had that disease. I had that, that stomach problem for about three weeks and lost about 20 pounds. And you, hey, it looks good. And then I gained it back. But anyway, there should be a natural overflow of a spiritual person who's been born of the Spirit to be hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And, and I wonder when someone isn't hunger, hungry and thirsty for righteousness if they're truly saved. It's not something you have to muster up. It's a natural draw. Because of the Spirit of Christ, you hunger and you thirst for righteousness. Not only do you hunger and thirst for righteousness, because your spirit does, but notice also in the text, as I think about hunger and thirst, it, it sort of helps us understand the necessity for nutrition. The reason why you eat is to bring nutrition to your body. Your body needs food. Without it, you would die. Without water, you would die. Without righteousness, you will die spiritually. And it's the reason there's so many dead believers today faking Christianity as the Pharisees did because they don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's, it's nutrition for your soul, and without it, you are going to turn spiritually dead. It's not a, a little bit of righteousness. 
But it's a complete, you know, somebody said, well, if I could just get a little bit of righteousness, then I'd be okay. Don't satisfy for a little bit. Go for the whole enchilada. Number C. Not only does it require cultivation, it requires consecration. There's a consecration in this text that's sort of alluded to in hunger and thirst. And, and that means I need to be devoted completely to righteousness. I need to eat, breathe, and be so devoted to righteousness that, that it is my number one thing. Notice what Matthew says in 633. But seek first, what? Seek second, seek third, seek fourth, seek what? First, his righteousness. Are we doing that? Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. Here's an interesting story that is not often referenced in the area of righteousness. It's about a young man who is in the pursuit of righteousness, and in all of his self-effort, he finally realizes that his life does not measure up. He's hopeless. He's lost. He's looking for an answer, a solution, and he comes finally to Jesus. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good, only one who is righteous. And if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones, which commandments do I need to keep in order to be righteous? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and shall love your neighbor as yourself. And notice his confession. And the man said to him, all these I have kept. Really? What's the answer to that? Really? Not. What, what sort of pious, self-righteous church member is this? Huh. All those other sinners in the church. I'm righteous. Self-righteous, that is. What do I still lack? I've done it all, man. I've done all that. Jesus says, really? He says to him, if you would be perfect, if you want to be righteous, righteous enough to earn salvation, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. And when the young man heard that he went, he went away sorrowful. Why? For he had great possessions. He desired what? His wealth over righteousness. Happens every day in the stock markets. Happens every day when theft takes place. But that's just an illustration because I think we sometimes think that unrighteousness is found in other forms like pornography and murder and adultery and those kind of things. And we have a tendency to look, well, I'm pretty righteous. I don't do those things. And we have a tendency to label these things. And Jesus said, no, no, it, it, it goes a little bit. I mean, how about a lie? Well, a why lie is okay. No, a lie is a lie. I talked to somebody a while ago and they came in and said, you're looking good today, preacher. I said, you're lying. I know you are. You know, we have a tendency to sort of label sins so that we can sort of convince ourselves that we are righteous, and yet we're not. So let's look at the delivery of righteousness. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be what? They will be what? What? Satisfied. You ever been to the table and walked away satisfied? And Jesus is about to show us how we can be satisfied. What does it mean to be satisfied? You see, he says when that word satisfied, our part is to seek. Our part is to desire. What is his part? 
His part is to satisfy. We desire, he supplies. We, we have the drive, he satisfies. All we have to do is bring to the table a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, and then he satisfies. We don't satisfy, he does. How does he do that? Number one, notice the provision of the Savior. He satisfies by providing a Savior. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, guess what? He's provided a Savior in Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Romans 4, 4. Now to the one who works his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. I like the way God counts. My sin, his righteousness equals my righteousness. That's God's addition. Isn't that awesome? My sin, Christ's righteousness, gives me a right standing before God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that, notice, in him we might become, what? The righteousness of God. He provided a Savior that did what I could not do in and of and apart from him. Not only to provide a savior, but now he promises salvation. Notice in Titus 3, this is an awesome passage. I was dissecting this, spent a, a whole afternoon on this. I have a great sermon on that. I'd like to preach it right now, but we don't have time. So I'm going to give you a synopsis here, okay? There's a promise of salvation here in Titus 3, 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. Stop there. Paul is giving his personal testimony in this letter. And he has just described his own depravity. He's just talked about his own rebellious nature, his own carnality, his inability to save himself. He's relating to them. He said, in and of our self-effort, we could not save ourselves, but there's something that happens between what he said and what he's about to say. However, there's something that is about to transform, that there's something that is going to change. However, when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, why did he send Christ? Because he loved you, for God so loved the world. Aren't you glad he was kind toward you? And that he was gracious and that while you were yet a sinner, he sent Christ to die for you. He was kind and our Savior, he, notice verse 5, he saved us. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Not because I, I worked hard enough and disciplined hard enough and, and delivered hard enough, all of a sudden I'm saved. No, notice that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He didn't treat you as you deserve to be treated by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The moment I placed my faith and trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit came to reside within me and you. And he cleansed us of our sin. And he sealed us with his presence to guarantee our salvation. And he continues to work in us to perfect that salvation through what the Bible calls sanctification. Notice verse 8, whom he poured out on us richly. God is a generous God. 
He's not like you or me. We're stingy. He's generous. And notice his generosity. He poured out on us richly through Jesus, gave us more than we could ever possibly spend, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Jesus became our substitute. He paid the penalty for our sin. He died in our place. And now we are joint heirs with Christ, and we have a position now of righteousness before the Father, which grants us access to him on the throne. The only reason why we can come into this place and to worship him is not because of our righteousness, but because of the position and the standing that we have in the righteousness of Christ. We have access to the very throne of God. So we have a promise of salvation because our all self-effort doesn't measure up. (laughs) Now now it does, and the reason it does is because he granted it to us. But notice the posture now of strength in this delivery. There's a posture here. There's a position that we have. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteousness shall live, the righteous shall live by faith. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, doesn't it? Why is there no condemnation? Because of the power of the gospel. Did you know that the message of the gospel contains the omnipotent, all-powerful person of God himself? And that when we, through the gospel, heard about the redemptive, redeeming work of Christ on the cross, the Holy Spirit convicted us of our sin, right? How did we know we were sinners? Because the gospel upholds the standard of God, who is God himself revealed in his scriptures. And when we we see our unrighteousness compared to his, we are convicted of our need for a savior. We turn to Christ as our savior. And when we do, the power of the gospel with the omnipotent power of God transforms us through the work of the Holy Spirit. and, And we now have the opportunity to change, to be transformed. There's power in the gospel. The gospel has strength that empowers us not only to transform our own lives, but to go into a lost world so that the omnipotent power of God can go forth. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you. Who works in me? It is God who works in you. What is he doing? He's working in you, notice, to do what? To will and to work for his good pleasure. Somebody said, well, I don't have the strength. No, you don't. You know, I've tried and tried and tried and tried and tried to be righteous, but it just ain't working. Good. You're in a good spot. Just give it up. No amount of discipline or determination or dedication or recommitment, no effort of your own really measures up to the effort and the strength that is available through the power of the Holy Spirit that works in us, God working in us, not only to want it, but to do it. The problem is we're not tapping into the right resource. We're trying to do it all ourselves. How, how, how well is that working for you? you? You doing pretty good? Are you ready to throw in the towel and say, I need some outside strength to help me because I just ain't doing very good. Bad grammar, great theology. But notice the progression now. 
once you surrender to him and he wills in us to do it and he works through us, Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, very debated passage, we don't have time to go into all of it, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He's wanting to conform us into the image of his son, which is what the Bible calls this big word called sanctification. But sanctification means that it is a process by which we are being slowly conformed into the likeness of Jesus. It's something that happens in this life. Glorification is what happens after death. We become completely transformed into the likeness of Jesus. You know, when you die and you go to heaven, you're going to be instantly transformed and you'll be completely perfect as he is perfect. But until then, you're going to struggle and you're going to strain. It's going to be a quest. It's going to be a journey. It's going to be gruesome. It's going to be tough. But guess what? I have, the, I have God in me who's not only willing to do it, but working in me to do it as I work out my salvation. He's working in me to sanctify me, to conform me into the likeness of Christ. That means he's adding some things and he's taking away some things. And, and it's a difficult process, isn't it? I mean, I wish God would just zap me, wouldn't you? Like, just zap you, and all of a sudden, we'd just go from here to way over here, and we'd be so much like Jesus that people would be envious of us. But how, how, uh, that's not, it, it's, it's a journey, it's a quest. Turn to Matthew chapter 3, and we'll close with this. Matthew 3. Interesting, as we are being conformed in the likeness of Christ, this beautiful passage in Matthew 3, Jesus giving us a beautiful example. He, the Son of God, is wanting himself to perform acts of righteousness in order to please God. That is his number one desire. Jesus wants to and lived out a life that was completely in the center of the will of God in order to please God. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill, notice what it says, all righteousness. Jesus was perfect. He never sinned. He was the only perfect being that ever walked the planet. Then he consented, John consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, notice what the voice says from heaven, this is God, this is my beloved, my blessed Son, in whom I am well pleased. How would you like to hear that from the Father? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have run a good race. You have fought a good fight. You have finished your course. Now come. Are you living your life in such a way as to bring a smile to God because you hunger and thirst for righteousness? It's a quest. It's a gruesome journey, but it's not that elusive, really. For in one sense, we possess it. 
and yet in another sense, we're moving toward it. We have a part, God has a part. God's done his part. Are you doing your part? Let's pray. Try that one more time. Good morning. All right, we got a great day today. Uh, Kevin made a decision a couple of weeks ago in our service, walked down the aisle and committed his heart and life to Christ, trusted Jesus as his Savior. And uh, you can tell in his countenance that Christ has made a difference in his life and has transformed his life. He has some special guests here today. His grandfather is in the audience. He is a, de a Baptist deacon, and his mom and dad are here and family. Would you guys stand? Let's uh, show our appreciation of them being here today as we celebrate this great time in Kevin's life. Kevin, it's our joy, brother, to celebrate the new life that Christ gave through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And uh, we know that God has an incredible purpose for your life. He's already spared your life once, right? And he spared your life again through sin. And so because of your profession of faith in Christ, it's my privilege, my brother, to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Bear, baptized with Christ in his death, to walk with Christ in the power of his resurrection. Amen. Woo. Hang on, Kevin. I want to I want to pray. Let's join me in prayer. Would you, Father, I thank you for the life that you have breathed into Kevin. For the journey that's brought him to this point where he has placed his faith and trust in you. Now that your spirit resides in him, I pray that he stands on a righteousness not of his own, but a righteousness is found through Christ because of the cleansing power of your Holy Spirit, that you would infill him with your presence, empower him with the gospel, and use him for your glory. Thank you for the joy that is ours as a church to celebrate this new life. And God, I pray you'd use him once again in great ways in the days to come. Build a hedge of protection around him. Bless him. Use him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Bless you, brother. 